0: Welcome to the Rock's Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins and I'm here as ever with Mr. Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Mr. Jasper Mirison Bowie. Hello, Barney. Joining us for this episode all the way from her native New York City. You are a native New Yorker, aren't you, Carol?
1: Yes, I was born right here at Beth Israel Hospital.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, so Dr. Carol Cooper is joining us today. She's one of the great American writers on black, Latin and global music and all kinds of other things. And we're on to have her with us. She's written for everyone from the Village Voice to The Face to New York Times. She's also worked in a She recently completed her doctorate and she teaches at NYU's Tisch School of Arts. And we've been lucky enough to have Carol on Rock's Back Pages from its very inception. So thank you, Carol. What got you into music in the first place?
1: Big question. I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, There's a difference between being into music and being into music writing and, you know, being into music, you know, curation. Right. But I would have to trace it back to you have to remember that radio was super important in the 60s and 70s in America in terms of exposing everyone to new music. And people forget because radio has become such a a bizarre and, and, and fractured kind of a medium right now with all these weird algorithms and streaming services kind of intervening in what used to be a fairly straightforward consensus process of exposing large numbers of people to the same music at the same time and Mm -hmm. seeing what they liked. It doesn't really kind of happen in exactly that way anymore, and I think we've Mm -hmm. lost a lot because... I remember the days very vividly where you could walk out onto the sidewalk and hear the exact same song coming from every car radio that passed you on the block. And during the height of WBLS, which of course was mostly during Frankie Crocker's reign as the program director there, you could walk past every boutique store and every Dunkin' Donuts on a block and hear the same music coming from there because everybody was tuned to BLS. So, you know, that level of Terrestrial radio competition—that level of synergy—doesn't really exist anymore in real life. Mm-hmm. You kind of have to go online, or you know, in some other way, kind of isolate yourself from real life and go into cyberspace in order to seek or find any kind of consensus or community around music at all. One of the things that I bonded with uh, Walter Gibbons about when I interviewed him, and he's a very famous yeah, DJ yeah. producer remixer who unfortunately we lost to AIDS when we were talking you know he pulled out all of the playlists that he had from WMCA the good guys when he was younger because he was such a fan he used to like ask the station to send him the playlist he was knee deep in MCA I was knee deep in WABC and later in the 70s WNEW and people have to realize that you know in the 60s it was all about AM radio so an AM radio was so powerful that they played everything. You could hear Elvis. You could hear Tom Jones. You could hear yeah. the Supremes. You could hear Otis Redding all on the same station. And if the DJ was skillful enough, you might hear them all in, in one hour. And this cultivated people's ears, in my opinion, and it certainly cultivated mine. By the time the 70s rolled around and FM radio started to be a factor, you all of a sudden had prog rock and really experimental music being played largely at night. And that was, of course, when Alison Steele, the Nightbird, became, you know, must listen radio for most of us. You know, I still remember the first time I heard Jethro Tull, you know, and it was Alison Steele who, like, played (laughs) that for me, you know, (laughs) and Led Zeppelin and God knows whoever many else. And there is a song from the Savannah band called Transistor Madness. And it really kind of sums up how I felt and how many of us felt about music during that time period. It's like it was all about your transistor radio. And, you know, even though in the 1980s people remember the boom boxes, I remember having one of those little tiny, yeah, yeah. palm sized AM radios and carrying it everywhere with me and like really being addicted to, you know, hearing whatever was being played. grow up that way you have a natural instinct about music and about pop music and you know I started buying my first records when I was nine or ten you know back when they were like 25 cents for a 45 and you know a dollar or two for an album (laughs) (laughs) and of course you know when you grow up that way you know music is a part of how you communicate it's a part of how you form community it's a part of how you make friends And for me, as an only child being raised by a single mother, my parents divorced when I was two. It really kind of helped to shape my world and my aesthetic.
0: Beautiful. That's lovely. How much impact did New York's music scenes and subcultures have on you? And I ask partly because we're running this fabulous piece you wrote about, the Disco Fever Club. Right. So what was, so what part of New York City did you grow up in and what were the first like clubs and things you were aware of?
1: Or remember, you know, not too long after I was born, my parents being, you know, aspirational black parents moved us out to North Jersey. And so I spent a certain amount of time in Newark and other parts of North Jersey that were also formative. And when I came back to the city to live full time, it was after I had graduated college. So You know, I was always in and out of New York because all of my mother's friends, all of my closer relatives, my godparents were all in New York. And so we were in in and out of New York every weekend. In the summer times, I used to participate in various youth programs that also required me to live in New York. And I stayed where I stay now, you know, in my godparents apartment building. And well, the earliest concert that I went to was the Supremes, right? And this was back in the 60s when they were still the Supremes and not Diana Ross and Supremes. And they had been booked into, I think it was Town Hall. It was the major concert hall in downtown Newark. I remember being dragged down there, you know, as a child, really not even an adolescent fully, by my parents and another kid who wanted to go being dragged there by their parents. And we remember sitting down in this beautiful space. The Supremes came out, they sang about... Three songs. (laughs) Then they went off stage, supposedly for a costume change, and they never came back. Oh, my God. And I remember, first of all, we sat there and nobody said anything. Nobody said anything. And then after about 25 minutes, people started to mumble and then nobody said anything. And (laughs) the only thing that happened after that was the host, the announcer, who was from one of the local radio stations, came on and said, we're sorry. Uh, due to circumstances beyond our control, the Supremes will not be coming back tonight. We're very sorry. They did not return anybody's money. They, <laughs> did, not, they did not even pretend to return anybody's money. And so when I interviewed Mary Wilson many years later, <laughs> I had to ask her. I said, you know, <laughs> I've always wondered about something. Do you remember this concert back in 1960? Um, um, you know, when you were in Newark, New Jersey, Says, oh, of course, I remember it like it was yesterday. What happened was is that the promoter didn't pay us and we didn't oh. find that out until we were already on stage and he refused to pay us. And, you know, the guy who had the money in the bag had already left. So we left, too. And 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 you know we're sorry that you know nobody told you guys about that, but it was as simple as that. You know when they didn't pay us, we left. (laughs) Fair
2: enough. Yeah, the Supremes have left the building. (laughs) Not uncommon. I mean, you know, I read about the struggles artists have with promoters so much. You know, and some artists would always have like a road manager with a gun to sort of like you know lock the promoter in his office.
1: You basically mm. needed it back then, and, and it 's funny to remember now because you you don 't you have this kind of rosy view of the music industry back in the sixties you know because as a kid, everything was just so wonderful, but there were a lot of shady characters and a lot of shady things went on and yeah. you know when I actually was hired to do a and r and kind of saw had my own exposure to the inner side of the music industry. I have to tell you that, you know, it's still shady. It's not quite as shady in exactly the same way as it was sure. back in the 60s, but you know, unfortunately, for whatever reasons, a criminal element as Arthur Baker used to make fun of because he used to <laughs> have the criminal element orchestra, of course. But a criminal element, you know, always kind of hovers around, you know, the entertainment world, and you know, somehow, you know, you just can't shake it. I mean, I don't know if it adds a little something, you know, a little, a little, a little special something to <laughs> to the music or not, but it's definitely there. Mm-hmm. But to get back to your question before about the, the local scene, one of the most important influences for me about the live music scene in New York was the fact that we have a very, very robust free music concert scene and we have free music that takes place in the local beaches. We have free music that takes place in the local parks, whether it's Brooklyn or the Bronx or Orchard beach that still goes on. And that was a very, very big influence on me as a kid, Latin and Caribbean music in particular Mm -hmm. took place in a lot of the beach concert series. And then you had the famous Schaefer music festival in the park at Walman rink. And that was amazing. Absolutely amazing. I saw so many concerts and so many different artists, because as you remember, Hilly Crystal and Ron Delsner co-founded that series, which then mutated into the Dr. Pepper series and then mutated into Pier 84 in the 80s, going all the way up into 1990. So they curated those shows. And I remember seeing the Kinks there. I remember seeing Savoy Brown. I remember seeing Ginger Baker when he was playing with the African band. He had just put a bunch of musicians from Fellas' band into his touring band. And mm-hmm. I remember seeing that lineup at the Schaefer Music Festival. And back then, those tickets were never more than $2. I mean, it was like between $1.50 and $2 to get into the actual open air space, which was the rink itself. And then if you didn't have a dollar or $2, you could listen for free up on the hillock on the grass by the trees. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so it was frigging amazing. And that yeah. was my... First exposure as a kid to, you know, what live music could be and should be.
2: Right on.
3: Here it goes.
1: One, two, three. You know, after high school, I mean, I never really went to nightclubs until I was legal, right? And of course, the legal age for alcohol changed from 18 to 21, uh-huh. kind of right in the middle of my own exposure to nightlife. So, you know, it was the first clubs that I remember going to were the hotel slash black radio nightclubs. So you'll remember Leviticus, which was in that big hotel that is right opposite of Madison Square Garden right now, back in the 70s. That was being rented and run by a group of Black radio people called the Best of Friends. And they had five clubs in different locations where WBLS and HBI and BGO and a lot of the other stations that catered to a Black audience used to host concerts. And Frankie Crocker, who at one point was a concert promoter, used to host uh, live shows there as well or promote live shows there. So you had Leviticus, you had the Martinique, which was another disco that took place in a hotel, a hotel space. Until I graduated college, that was pretty much where we went. And then after that, after that, you had the rise of hip hop and you had a bunch of different spaces that were happening. Yes. There was also the transition between... between turntable and, you know, DJ-produced music and live band music. A lot of the smaller spaces, whether you're talking about The Cellar, which was an uptown club that R&B acts used to perform live at, Or you're talking about little like bistros like Showman's Cafe on 125th Street. Those spaces had live PA systems, which were gradually being phased out in favor of DJ systems, which I'm told were cheaper to install and and, and service. So I would say between, let's say between 77 and 1982. The number of live performance spaces in New York where an actual band could perform live shrank in favor for those clubs that had PA systems that were oriented towards what we call TV track performances and TV track for those people who don't know is a quarter-inch reel of tape that has all of the instrumentation of your hit song on it and sometimes a little bit of the backing vocals right. and sometimes a little bit of the lead vocal, too, if you need some helper. And <laughs> and, uh, and this could be queued up in the DJ booth for the person to come in to perform, quote-unquote, live yeah. to their backing track. And this was much, much cheaper than having to have a PA system or having, or for the record company to have to pay a full band to come and do a tour or a live performance. So little by little, that took the place of the live bands that I had grown up as a pre-adolescent listening to and enjoying.
2: Yeah. Now, it's pretty interesting. I mean, it's sort of similar thing happened here. You had what, what well, we call them PAs. Yes. Rather than that, and it's exactly that. It'd be someone in a club usually a dance club, sort of one of the major sort of disco things, and they put a backing track on and the woman would come out and sing her hits. It's not a great experience, is it? It's sort of, you know, it, it's neither a great, a great disco experience nor a great live experience.
1: No, it, it takes some getting used to, at least it did for me. Mm-hmm. Because I was still, I mean, when I was still in college, between like 73 and 76, I was still used to, you know, live shows. I mean, basically the concerts I would go to would be live. And even the the groups that our student entertainment committee would bring in would be live. We actually got LaBelle to come to Wesleyan, (laughs) which is where I went to school, right at the point where Nightbirds was peaking. I mean, because, of course, you know, they asked them to come in the fall of that year and the record didn't start getting on radio until well into the fall. So by the time they had already committed, the contracts were signed to come perform for us, a little college in Connecticut, you know, (laughs) for a fraction of what everybody else was paying to see them at the time. So it was frigging amazing. I mean, they did an entire album dressed all in silver. Everybody in the audience was dressed up and half of them were tripping. (laughs) And it was (laughs) was amazing. It was Absolutely
2: amazing. We had the great pleasure of uh, when we had Vicky Wickham on the podcast a few months back, that her technical support was Nona Hendricks. <laughs> it was,
0: <laughs> wow. was, was marvellous. You know, we were all sort of not worthy. You know? <laughs> she, she got a credit in the show notes, didn't she? I think. Yeah, it was her <laughs> finest hour. Uh, that's a great. So, if some, Labelle just keeps popping up in this podcast. It doesn't really it? does. Have, uh, yeah. Adele Bertet talking about her Labelle, and we love it. And we love it so. Thank you for mentioning them. The first of the three pieces we're featuring by Carol is from the late lamented Soho Weekly News. I don't know when you wrote your first piece, but how did you get your foot in the door at the Soho Weekly News and how do you remember that publication?
1: Well, I cold called Peter Ochio Grosso, who was the, the music editor for the Soho Weekly News, every week for about a month and a half until he agreed to see me and look at my clips and take a pitch. And that's pretty much how I got into everywhere. I either cold called or I cold visited the offices of publications that I had read and, and liked and wanted to appear in and basically cold pitched my stories until somebody would listen to me unlike a lot of people who say that, you know, either a friend or, you know, a boyfriend or, you know, somebody, some other connection got them in the door. 99% of the time, I basically got myself in the door um, simply because I was passionate about what I wanted to write about. I was a really, really, really good researcher and I knew what these publications didn't already have people doing for them. So I was able to pitch them something that they couldn't already get in house. And I was very much aware of the fact that there were no other black female music critics writing for any of these publications or mainstream publications in general, anywhere. And very few white females doing a regular music criticism for any of these publications. So I understood that, you know, I had a point of view that they didn't have and needed. And I had, you know, a certain amount of personal conviction that I didn't think would be easy to ignore, so, so I basically just kind of knocked on the door until somebody answered it.
0: Amazing! I think I first read you in the face, not being in New York. Right. I would occasionally see the Village Voice if I, or I, I would always buy the Village Voice when I went to New York to do pieces. But I remember this great Prince piece that you wrote for the. For the face, in which you kind of invent- invented an interview with Prince because he, wa- <laughs> he wasn't talking to anybody. How did you come to write for the Face? Was it again just you kind of cold visited the Faces offices? But uh, you- yes, I did. You did? Okay. <laughs> yes, I did.
1: Yes, I did. I bought this little book called "England on Five Dollars a Day." <laughs> and- I checked the airline prices and I found out that I could buy a round trip ticket to London from New York, leaving on a like Friday and coming back on a Monday night. And that's what I did. I stayed at the University of London dorms. <laughs> First of all, you have to know that all during the 70s and 80s, you know, everybody was going to those newsstands that carried import publications. And we were all reading Melody Maker, NME. And when The Face came out, it was the best looking thing about music that was on the newsstand. There Mm -hmm. was no way to ignore it. And I was an early, you know, an early fan, an early reader. And I just decided one day that I wanted to write for them. And I had been writing for Soho and The Village Voice and The Black American and Latin New York and enough other places where I had a bunch of clips And I said, well, I'll just go see them, show them my clips, tell them what I want to do and see what they say. So um, back then they had those offices in Soho, I think it was. And I think I might've called first to kind of let them know, well, I'm going to be in town and, you know, I write for this place and that place and the other place. And I just want to kind of like see you guys and, you know, show you some clips. But basically, you know, I found out where they were and, you know, and and that they were going to be in and I... Walked in the into the office. I met Nick and Paul Rambali at the same time. Paul, of course, was the editor who was handling all the music stuff. And he read my stuff. We had a chat. We we joked about Lester Bangs and, and, and Julie Birchell and he <laughs> gave me a column. <laughs> you know, so that's Fantastic. how it went.
0: <laughs> I love your just determination. So it's very inspiring because I think you know any young, aspiring journalist listening to this, you know, probably I mean I would include myself in like going back and thinking of how I started out. that idea that you would just keep calling, you know, so many young people, it's like they get one rejection and then that's it. You know, they just sort of shrink away from it. And you just, you just kept calling or cold calling, cold visiting. That's what you have to do, isn't it? I mean, whatever, whatever area of kind of work you're pursuing, you just have to, you just have to not take no for an answer, right? If you believe Absolutely. in yourself. Yeah.
1: No, I mean, every every biography I've ever read, you know, basically tells that same story. It's like, you know, not everybody, you know, gets welcomed everywhere they go the first time they go there. You know, they have to believe that they have some sense of destiny and that this is what they're born to do and they're going to do it no matter what. I did have a lot of confidence about that. And what's interesting is that, There are many, many areas of life where I have no confidence whatsoever. But writing, I knew. I had known that I was a good writer since third grade. I knew that I could write in a way that was persuasive and that people would want to finish reading it. And then on top of that, I was writing the kinds of things that I wasn't seeing other people write so that I could read them. And so I figured, you know, if I want to read this stuff, maybe there's other people out there who want to read it, too. Yeah. And that's kind of what drove me. There were artists that I felt needed attention that weren't getting it. There were points of view that I felt needed attention that weren't getting it. There were perspectives on life and culture and the historical imperative that I really, really, I mean, being a college kid, I really, really wanted to address some of these things. I used to joke that back in the 80s, I was essentially rewriting the same piece over and over and over again. But what I meant by that was I had a point that I really wanted to make about culture and history and what back at the time I couldn't say out loud, but you can say now, white supremacy. Yeah. And what white supremacy was doing to culture. And the only way that I could do this was by covering those pieces of music and those scenes, because I was a a scene reporter as well, that made my point for me. And I knew when I decided—I decided back in '77 that I wanted to go into journalism because, you know, when when my first attempted at a career, which was, you know, I wanted to be a advertising copywriter, right? So after madman, <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I had read this book called uh, "From Those Wonderful Folks That Brought You Pearl Harbor" by Jerry Delafamina. <laughs> that's such a great title. Yeah. And it was his hilarious, picaresque story of how he broke into the advertising world and and how advertising changed the world, right? So I said, okay, yeah, I could do that. (laughs) (laughs) But, but, you know, after a couple of internships that didn't lead anywhere, I said, you know what? I need to change the world faster than this. So, you know, I need to find a way to expose my, my points of view to the world. And all these publications are out here and they take freelancers. So let me go just jump in and start doing that. So, Fantastic.
2: That's what happened. So Madison's Avenue's loss is
0: our gain. <laughs>
1: Hopefully. I hope so.
0: Definitely. Carol, all your pieces on RBP are fantastic. Yeah. And a lot of them obviously are about like soul and R&B and funk, but you've written very extensively about Latin and other global musics. And you even did a stint at Sony Latino in the early 90s. So we're featuring a great piece you wrote for The Village Voice in, in 2000 called Are We the World? Global Music in the U.S. Faces the 21st Century, which is which is very kind of prescient, makes for very prescient reading now. There's a brilliant bit in it where you talk about, and you say almost as a kind of premonition, future trends in world music are for the most part already here, although they still operate a bit under the radar of suburban mall commerce, the Indian diaspora, which has already given us bangra, Anoka and unexpected new forms of Trinidadian soca will will become even more influential in underground dance music as DJs and divas from Brooklyn and Jersey continue to cross-pollinate by travelling to clubs in London, etc., etc. And that's certainly something that's happened with a vengeance, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, my advantage or, you know, the felicitous accident of me being based in New York in the 80s and 90s when the live club scene was so diverse and so experimental is that I really, I I had like a bird's eye view of almost every trend just before it became mainstream. Mm -hmm. And it was really, really fascinating. I mean, in 1988, when the military dictatorship finally left power in Brazil and returned that country to democratic government, that was the first year or the first time period when all of a sudden all of these pop artists from Brazil felt free and able to leave to tour in the United States to kind of bring that music to an urban American audience. So the first I remember the first time I saw Beto Carvalho perform in New York, Gilberto Gil, Gal Costa, Martinho da Vila, all of these artists came one after the other, in a, like a two-year period. And then I was one of the few people who, because I had done my year abroad in Bahia, Brazil in 1976, I was one of the few American music critics who could write about this music because I lived with a Brazilian family and they collected all of the records by these people. And therefore, I was living with a Brazilian family, hearing their record collection and you know understanding the music from that perspective. So by the wow. time I got back to the States you know, and these people started to perform here, I was able to talk about their music from that kind of a perspective and from that
0: background.
4: um
1: The other thing that happened in 76 was about the end of my time in Brazil, I found out from a black librarian in Bahia that there was going to be a world festival of black and African art and culture taking place in Lagos, Nigeria, that January. And this was the Fest Act. And you may or may not be aware of the fact that even though the existence of this festival was promoted fairly heavily in Europe and in uh, the Caribbean and in, in uh, Latin America, it was not promoted at all in the United States. And there was one American delegation that managed to come to the Tech in Lagos for the month that it was taking place there. And it was a school group from Washington, D.C. Somehow they had found out this thing was happening. They had contacted the organizers and they had managed to get the visas and permissions to take a small group of Americans over to this event which was just amazing. Um, six Representatives from 64 Black and African countries around the world sent delegations to present music and literature and some, you know, political writing during this month-long festival. And I just remember both halves of my world kind of came together because I had the exposure to Latin America and Brazil from you know, the time that I had spent there. I went almost directly from Brazil to Lagos, Nigeria in 1977, the same year, by the way, that Stevie Wonder tried to accept his Grammys for Songs in the Key of Life from Nigeria. He tried to do that live telecast, you'll remember. Yes. And to this day, there are people who think that that was sabotage, that that the transmission of his acceptance speech from live from Nigeria, along with the performance, was deliberately sabotaged so that people would not come away with the idea that, you know, anybody in Africa was capable of doing anything that sophisticated. yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> So I had all of this background so that by the time I graduated, you know, with my master's in 77 and started freelancing at all these different places in New York and writing about music and other things at various different places, I had an orientation that little did I know would become the dominant cultural orientation in the, in the succeeding decades, you know, that this whole idea that, you know, world beat or world music was not some niche, underdeveloped genre, but it was actually happening concurrently with every kind of American and European pop music, and that it was simply a matter of selective promotion and uh, economic protectionism that made people not realize that, you know, these were equivalent musical scenes to the Anglo-American scene. Mm -hmm. They weren't in any way lesser. Yeah, yeah, sure. (laughs) Sure.
0: To bring things up to the present day, Carol, I, I wanted to ask you a sort of, it may be a rather strange question, hard to answer, but you completed your doctorate in Jungian and archetypal psychology last year, for which big congratulations. i um, was just curious as to whether <laughs> your, your studies in that in that discipline has in any way altered your relationship to music or may look at music differently.
1: In a way, yes. In a way, no. First thing that we need to remember is that Jung himself was pretty famously unable to listen to music after his nekia. Okay? After... Between uh, 1914 and 1918, he had a, a major confrontation with the unconscious, which some people look at as a, a nervous breakdown. Other people realize as him experimenting with his own unconscious and you know trying to figure out how to integrate unconscious perceptions and conscious perceptions to the point where he could have a positive and developmental effect on his own personality. So this is very much a part of, you know, what Jungian psychology is all about. I mean, people may talk about archetypes as patterns of personality, but, you know, the deeper you get into Jungian psychology, the more you realize that basically what he's trying to do is he's trying to get people to see that every human endeavor has a psychological component. And that's why interdisciplinary studies is the biggest thing that Jungian psychology brought to modern psychology. The fact that you can study dance and apply it to psychology, you can study music and apply it to psychology, you can study mathematics and and, and theoretical physics and apply it symbolically and metaphorically to human psychology. So for me, taking taking the doctorate in this admittedly arcane field (laughs) was just an extension of everything else that I had been doing. Right. You know, when Jung told one of his patients who had come to visit him who was a musician that for years he could not listen to music because it was too archetypal I understood that to mean that you know he had refined his own sensibility to the point that he could hear a chord or he could hear you know a phrase of music and all of the emotional content all of the evolutionary content that was in that piece of music would kind of flood over him it, it would overwhelm him right you know and you know I found that very interesting to know you know the the fact that the same way that I sometimes feel profoundly moved by a piece of music that Jung not only felt that way but felt that way to an extent whereby he could no longer listen to music
0: wow gosh yeah that is fascinating yeah.
4: It sort of takes you back in an interesting way to your desire to be an advertising copywriter, given <laughs> that the sort of father of, of public relations and propaganda was Freud's nephew, Eddie Bernays.
0: Yeah. Sort of funny,
4: <laughs> Who applied Freud's psychoanalysis to, like, you know, convince the American public about bacon and eggs being the true all American breakfast and that sort of thing. <laughs> well,
1: no, a- it's true. It's true. I mean, it's, it's, you know, psychology as we understand it today. Is embedded in every human endeavor. It really is, and you can you can use a psychological lens to manipulate any other human endeavor. It's really really funny.
2: That's fantastic stuff, <laughs> Jasper. I have to say, I take my hat off to you for that. Yeah.
1: particular Yeah, <laughs> <detail>.
0: fantastic, fantastic. <laughs> well, I'm <mean>, surprised <laughs> to say, you can read Carol's incredible pieces on Rock's Back Pages, and also in a collection that you published about 15 or so years ago, called Pop Culture Considered as an Uphill Bicycle Race. I know it's not all music pieces in there, but there's certainly some music pieces in there. The and, majority, uh, yeah. majority <laughs> exactly. Majority. It's still available, isn't it?
1: Oh, yes. Yes, it's available. I'm about ready to set up an e-commerce site on my own archival site, simply because I am so tired of Amazon.com screwing up my orders I mean, right. they have gone <laughs> yeah. from being, you know, marginally functional as a way to get my book to the public to being completely dysfunctional as a way of getting my book to the public. And I'm just tired of, you know, absorbing the loss. You know, just recently yes. yeah. they sent me an order for like 10 books. I sent them out and now they're sending almost half of them back to me saying that they couldn't sell them. It's like, didn't somebody order these? Isn't this why you asked me to send them in the first no. place? And, you know, they, they only pay me a fraction of of, of what the book is actually worth, yep. and then I have to spend a quarter of that mailing the shit to them. You know? so, <laughs> so it's like, no, this, there's got to be a better way. There has to, there has to be, there has to be. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah.
2: I loved the Disco Fever piece. I sort of re a show from the Experience Music Project a few years back, quite a few years back, called Yes, Yes, Yol, which was about the first, 10 years of hip-hop. Ah,
1: yeah, I like that.
2: 73 to 83. I read, I read it in London completely differently. But I loved the book that Charlie A. Hearn and people did. And yes. um, I became so... When, when did you first become aware of hip-hop? Can you remember the first time you, you heard it or experienced it in any shape? Or
1: the form? Armoury Show. The Armoury Show. I mean, it yeah. was very, very... It, it's very interesting because I, at that time... I had just started writing for The Voice. I was still writing both for the Soho Weekly News and The Voice at that time. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reasons, Bob Criscow was all of a sudden really, really curious and interested in, you know, in what was happening with hip hop. I have a feeling that part of what was happening is that a lot of his downtown art friends had already done, started the Uptown Meets Downtown movement and he had... You know, you had a lot of alternative rock and white art renegades going to the Roxy and seeing what was happening there. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, maybe this was not too... This was maybe just before the mud club got started and invited African Bambada from the Roxy to the mud club to start bringing the music there. You know, so there was some curiosity in these white mainstream spaces about what was going on in the Bronx. So the armory... If you're not familiar, it's the the armory is a city owned building, which is used for many, many different, you know, large scale city and state and municipal functions. I mean, you know, various different uh, military reserve groups meet there and do certain kinds of, you know, uh, maneuvers or or exercises there. Mm -hmm. The city schools sometimes have events there. Haru Act used to do their yearly registration there. So it's this big, huge, cavernous, empty space they built a stage on it and sugar hill records who at that time was the biggest rap label that was you know getting a lot of attention sure basically put on a show you know and so you had sequence performed Mm -hmm. Four plus one more performed grandmaster flash did a a, a dj only set you know who who cuts faster grandmaster that kind of thing And, of course, the headliners were going to be the Sugar Hill Gang. Right. So, and Curtis Blow was kind of like, you know, there as well being, you know, kind of the Mercury artist, the sole Mercury artist who was invited (laughs) to kind of be there because he had already crossed over with Christmas rapping and stuff like that. So I was there to cover that for, I forget who I covered that for. I know that I was told about it when I was at The Voice, but I don't think I covered it for them. But I went up there and basically everything was fine. Everything was, you know, everybody was having a good time right up until the time when Sugar Hill Gang came up on the stage. And that's when all the stick-up kids started doing their thing. And all of a sudden, everybody was running and stampeding, yeah. and everybody had to, had to leave, right? So, <laughs> 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 but, you know, this is just the way things were back then. So, you know, you, knew, you kind of you know, took your chances, and you knew that this was going to happen. So anyway, that was the first actual performance I went to. I never made it to the Harlem World gig's because at that time i was mostly covering jazz, you know fusion jazz and stuff that was happening brazilian stuff and reggae. Right. Those were my those were my beats at the beginning and so i was seeing a lot of live music downtown that was showcasing those music. Mm-hmm. Hip hop was kind of on the back burner for me right up mm-hmm. until the Fresh Fest happened, okay? The Fresh Fest which was the Swatch Watch sponsored concert series that i believe started <laughs> in 84. Right. 84, something like that. So, but anyway, I went to those shows and that was really big fun. I mean, the Fat Boys were performing, (laughs) you know, you had LL Cool J. I first saw Houdini at the Fresh Fest. And you could really tell that, you know, hip hop was growing from this really, really small kind of insular, you know, uptown scene, you know, that was, that was at that point in time, you know, 99% black. I mean, you had white kids who yeah, yeah. You know, were interested in it, but you didn't have anywhere near the amount of white audience that would later come into it. Sure. And it was, I mean, you know, Run DMC, you know, mm-hmm. was, came out of that, interestingly enough. I mean, you know, it was it was a very transitional time because you went from Africa Bambaataa and Soul Sonic Force, which was still kind of like disco meets, meets craft work, right? Sure. I mean, it was not, you know, rap or hip hop as it would become known. Sure. You went from that... Through a phase of when, you know, rap became very musical, like with Houdini, the Sugar Hill Gang, which used to have a live band play the music behind the rappers and thereby, you know, avoided what would happen later with sampling. Mm -hmm. And so you had that really interesting in-between time. And I think that, you know, what ended up happening was LL Cool J and Run DMC, I think, are predominantly responsible for pushing rap into a very very spoken word oriented art form yeah, where yeah. what was being said and how it was being said was more important than the
3: music. Sure. My brain, believe me i like it loud. I'm the man with the box that can rock the crowd. Walking down the street to the hardcore beat while my JVC vibrates the concrete. I'm sorry if you can't understand. i, mean,
1: I
2: can remember the very first time i heard rapper's delight, which is obviously the, the first rap hit of any description. And in my band van van Going to a gig in Oxford and this record came on a radio and we all looked at each other and said, This is good times by chic. What are all these people talking over it? You know, I mean it was it was such an alien experience. It was amazing. But you know, I mean I I've I've ended up falling quite a bit in love with it but anyway.
1: But well, rem- <laughs> remember, at that point in time, you know, the, the rap role was so small that everybody knew everybody else. So yeah, yeah. you know, Disco Fever was the club of choice for everybody who was into hip-hop and in R&B for a very long time. Sure. And you know because it was an after-hours spot, after Russell Simmons and all the people you know in his crew had mm-hmm. hit every other club downtown, then around 2, 3 in the morning, you'd end up at the Fever, and then you'd go on <laughs> until dawn, right? So after the Fresh Fest, there were flyers being circulated. That the after party was going to be at the Fever, which, of course, naturally, why wouldn't it be? And so that was the first time I went to the Fever, even right. though it was literally across the bridge from my house. <laughs> you know, I mean, if I wanted to go to the Fever, once I started going, it would take me all of like five minutes, you know, after the cab got <laughs> there, you know, it would, it would drive over the bridge and then a few more blocks down to the left and there I would be. <laughs> you know, So, you know, Sal Abatello, who you've probably met and interviewed, is a fascinating individual. I mean, his story still needs and deserves to be told because, you know, he was literally the blackest white boy in hip hop and still is (laughs) as far as I'm concerned, you know, and and it's because he's one of the few people who I can genuinely say and without any kind of shade or any kind of irony that he does not see color. He was able to run. Almost all black and Latino spaces for years and still does a very, very lively scene in Queens and in the Bronx that caters mostly to a black and Latino clientele simply because he identifies with black and Latino culture and black and Latino people.
2: Yeah, we got a fantastic audio interview with him by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton on our site. He's really very diverting man. It's, it's a great interview. You know, he just talks yes. about the, the hustlers, the MCs, the gangsters, the whole the whole thing that made that club work. Anyway, it's yeah. great stuff. I love that piece. Your, your piece on it. It's it great.
1: That was inspired. I mean, it was the right thing at the right time. I think Warlock had approached me during a time when I was particularly clear-headed. <laughs> and, uh... As opposed to what? <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I had my good days and my bad days like everybody else. You know? <laughs> and, um, and, and some days, you know, I lean so much towards, you know, uh, cerebral academic space that I don't do what I consider to be my best writing. My best writing is stuff that's smart but accessible. And, you know, sometimes when I'm too much into a theoretical space, Uh you know, the jargon gets the best of me. But, you know, when I'm really in the zone, you know, I think I did a piece on House of Pain where I thought I was in the zone. It's one of the best things I've ever written. I did a piece on Tribe 8 where I thought I was in the zone and did one of the best things I've ever done. Some of my features, I think, fall into that category, particularly the gospel features. But that Warlock compilation really inspired me to go deep about all the things that I thought, was important about the space and had not been said by anybody else mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. fantastic mm-hmm. carol thank you so much for talking to us about your career. we could i can see we could talk for hours <laughs> and we're gonna have to have you back to talk about so many other aspects of your career in addition to the three pieces that we're featuring we've also included your wonderful otis Redding liner notes for uh-huh. for rhino in the week's free feature which focuses on stacks legend steve cropper steve has a new solo album out called fire up, which uh, it, nice. it coincidentally is produced by fellow RBP contributor John Tiven. <laughs> Don't say anything, Mark. I will. So th- so,
1: so, so we'll we promote our own. Yeah.
0: yeah. I, I thought it'd be nice to talk about the man once I think described as soul music's greatest guitarist. Mm. So, Carol, just briefly, I mean, 30 years on from those liner notes you wrote for the definitive Otis Reading, which are, which are just fabulous. Just another, I don't know whether you were in the zone or not for those, but I, I loved I did a rereading lot of them. Yeah, you did. <laughs> a lot you did. Of it's, so it's, it's so interesting because it's about so much more than just Otis and the studios and Booker T and the MGs. It's about Phil and Alan Walden and Joe Galkin or Galkin, or how he pronounces it name so it's a, you really create the sort of backstory to Otis's success I mean how what's your take now as I say like three decades later what's your take on the whole stack story the you know Booker T and and the MGs as this interracial group in the south in 1962 I mean how do you look back on that has your has your take on it changed in any
1: way It hasn't changed from the time when I did the liner notes because one of the things that my research underscored for me was the fact that Memphis, Tennessee was a very, very unique space Mm -hmm. for music. I mean, just look at the record labels that, that came out of there. I mean, you know, if you talk to any of the musicians who were involved in those scenes they will tell you that it was, it. was there was no big deal about white and Black musicians playing together. It happened mm-hmm. all the time, and it happened very, very naturally and organically. And I think that in most cases, when there is no overt agitation to make somebody in political power think that this is not okay, this happens naturally. You know, I think the problem with the South and, and desegregation and everything that we know about the history of that is that there were always a certain number of people who didn't care about segregation and keeping the races separate. And there were always an equal number of people who cared too much about it. And the pendulum swing between those two impulses was essentially what caused most of the trouble and most of the problems and also a certain lack of honesty. In other words, we used to call, you know, the South being, you know, behind the cotton curtain. Right. But we all used to also, you know, I, I have relatives in Kentucky and relatives in Texas. And when I would visit them, they would call where I lived up South. Right. (laughs) And the fact of the matter is, is that the racism and the discrimination up South, was every bit as intense as what you might see or expect in the South, but it was more hypocritical. And it was very, very, you know, it was it was masked under many, many other excuses for not allowing people to have equal access and equal respect.
0: And that, of so, course, is that that is the subject of Randy Newman's famous or infamous song, Rednecks. That's precisely mm, the yes. point he makes in that song, isn't it?
1: Yes. No, I mean... Uh, I mean, the human race, (laughs) the human race, in a way, is so sad and so predictable in terms of the problems it creates for itself. Because, I mean, Octavia Butler, the, the science fiction author, used to say that hierarchical behavior is the main thing that's going to cause the extermination of the human race. The fact that we need hierarchies the fact that somebody always has to think of themselves or place themselves as more important, higher, you know, richer than somebody else. Mm. And the problem with racial prejudice and with white supremacy is that it assumes that only these people over here deserve the best of everything and in order for them to have the best of everything, nobody else can have anything. Right. And that's simply not true. I mean there 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 is abundance. There is there is enough abundance Mm -hmm. on the planet so that everybody should be able to get their share. Mm -hmm. The fact that, you know, politicians in particular don't want us to believe that Mm -hmm. ends up, you know, manipulating people's perceptions and, you know, basically creating a hypocrisy that I think is dangerous to everybody's health. Um, Mm -hmm. if you look at the way most musicians lead their lives, They could care less what color somebody is as long as they're producing the sound that they want to hear or as long as together they can make the music that they want to make. And, you know, to me, that's sort of ideal. I mean, you know, to the extent that there is still a certain amount of racial repartee or racial envy in the musical world. I mean, this has to do with economics. It doesn't really have to do with anything, you know, hardwired. in in anybody's personality you know it's, it's sometimes people are jealous that you know a black musician plays better than they do or sings better than they do, or gets mm. more women than they do, you know, and and, and yeah. that jealousy will cause people to act a certain way. Conversely, sometimes a black musician will be angry that, you know, they don't get paid as much as the white musician, even though the white musician doesn't play as well, mm-hmm. you know, sure. and, and, yeah. and, and doesn't even look as good, you know, and that kind of thing. So,
0: <laughs> Yeah, of course.
1: So, you know, I mean, it's to me the act of researching the Memphis scene during the 60s and 70s and even to getting quotes from a lot of the people who used to tour with Otis and people who were in business with Otis and his various record labels and such, they admired the man for his talent. You know, they might have had all kinds of, you know, preconceptions about, you know, what black people were and, you know, and what black men in particular were. But at the base of it, at the bottom of it, they met him. They knew him as a human being. They admired his talent. They admired his business acumen. And that erased everything else at the yes. end of the day. Yep. And, yes. and, and, you know, somehow I would like to see us continue to evolve in that direction. I don't know what could precipitate that, but I, I, I can only hope.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we've got two great interviews with Steve Cropper. One from 1967, Jim Delahant and Hit Parade, which I noticed that you quoted from in in those liner notes I referred to. It's a terrific interview for that time. And then a much later interview by Bill Wazazir in um, 2001, where Steve kind of well, looks back over Stack's years and, and also playing with Neil Young and, and other things that he got involved with and the MG's gotten involved with. We've also, we're also featuring an audio interview that I myself did in 1998, where Steve remembers the kind of, yeah, like the kind of inception of sitting on the dock of the bay. So I wonder Jasper whether we could hear that clip.
3: Absolutely. In most cases, when when Otis came to town, uh, which was really very seldom except to record, um, he came in and was so excited uh, about showing me this idea that he had that he came straight to the studio and usually he would check into the hotel or I'd pick him up and check him into the hotel. Yes. Um, And then we would go from there, I'd pick him up and then whatever. And we usually wrote at the hotel yes but he came by on a day uh that there wasn't any sessions going on there wasn't anybody in the studio and uh, he came by and uh said you got to hear this idea and i said fine you know grabbed the guitar sat down and he started playing his you know his one <laughs> one finger chord <laughs> <laughs> strumming you know yes and he and he. Sit down and he played this, uh, sitting in the morning sun, sitting when evening comes, watching ships, da, 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 watch watching roll away again, sitting on the dock of the bay, da, 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 da. and that was man, unbelievable. Yes, I, out. I grabbed a guitar and we started working on it. Sitting in the morning sun, I'll be sitting in the evening, comes, watching the ships roll in, and then I'll watch them roll away. Yeah, I'm sitting on the dock of the bay Watching the tide roll <laughs>
0: Nicely those Ozark tones, yeah, so um, and,
2: and you chewing gum,
0: Barney. I, mean, I, I know. I just realised. <laughs> yeah. Oh it's my a feature, god! Feature of yeah.
2: Barney's phone interviews is
0: a, a lot, lot of gum, gum chewing. I haven't. It's weird because I haven't chewed gum for many, many years. Now. I don't think I've ever seen you chew gum. No, I don't right? anymore. I don't anymore. Uh, because yeah, anyway, uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's not talk about my gum chewing habits. I mean, listening to that. I mean, in, in a way, it just sort of makes me. I don't know. whether... Nostalgic is the right word, but there was something about the, almost like the brotherhood between Otis and Cropper. These two guys really loved each other. I I don't know whether you felt that, Carol, or whether that was your feeling about about Cropper.
1: I don't recall having any specific feeling about the relationship between them, but I do know that that whole bench of Stax musicians were extremely, extremely tight you know, and, and everybody who ever met them in any situation has commented on that. And I believe it was real. I believe it was real. I believe it was organic. And, but, you know, I've been around enough musicians to know, I mean, hell, I mean, I spent enough time, you know, in the studio watching Kid Creole and the Coconuts work, you know, to know (laughs) that, you know, a band creates its own planet. It creates its own world. It creates its own family. And, you know, it's interesting when you think about, you know, what happened to Stacks in the later years. I mean, you know, Stacks, of course, made the transition to black ownership at a certain point in time and they basically forced the Axtons out. You know, this was during the height of black power. And it was Mm -hmm. also the time when Isaac Hayes became, you know, the main, you know, the iconic hit maker for, for Stacks at that particular point in time and, you know, completely changed the way black radio approached music and stuff. You know, I look at that and I say, you know, there are a couple of things going on there. Number one, when Al Bell and when the black musicians who were involved in Stax, you know, wanted to own their own means of production, mm-hmm. part of their dissatisfaction came from the fact that, you know, the Axtons had had basically sold their masters out from under them. Yeah. You know, I mean, and and this this was, you know, not their fault so much because of their naivete, but they did do it. Mm. And it's hard not to think that, you know, if you run your own company, that you might be able to do a better job protecting your legacy and, and your, your patrimony than the people who sold off your masters, <laughs> sure. you know, so, yeah. so, you know, I think, I mean, as it turned out, you know, there were other problems that arose, you know, during that time period, not the least of which was a certain amount of industry, you know, protectionism and embargoing of stacks Mm -hmm. and the banks not being willing to lend them money or lending them money at exorbitant interest rates or in other ways interfering with their ability to be profitable even though they should have been Mm. you know so you you look at all that history and you say you know it's a shame that it kind of went down that road and that there were you know bad feelings that you know arose because of you know the racialization of what had been a very very tight-knit family of black and white musicians and entrepreneurs who, you know, made money together. I mean, hell, you know, a certain number of Elvis's hits were written by a black songwriter. So, you know, right. I mean, it, it was it wasn't it wasn't always that bad. You know? <laughs> but but the fact of the matter is that there is the historical imperative that we all must face sooner or later. Yeah. And, you know, slavery did happen. <laughs> You know, yeah. <laughs> you know, some people didn't fare too well under that system, and you know there is there 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 is a price that has to be paid. You know, sooner or later. I mean, you know, karma, for lack of a better word.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah no, yeah. I, absolutely. All very, very fair and astute points. I did want to just briefly talk about Cropper as a guitar player. The second the interview that I referred to by by Bill was is here from Blues Review. 2001 at this point mojo's just conducted a a poll of the greatest guitarists of all time one of those and Cropper has come in number two behind hendrix and bill asked him i mean were you surprised that you're like the greatest living guitarist and he says i was a little overwhelmed i would never consider myself in those ranks and it made me think that you know yes in a way you don't you never think of steve cropper in the terms that you think about Jimi Hendrix. But he is one of the great guitar players. I mean, I always think just the, the, the sound, what he does on Green Onions is so uh, revolutionary, you know. Yes. And right the way through the Stacks sort of catalogue, his playing, it's never it's never sort of out front and kind you know, showy offy at all. He very rarely... He's not a guitar, guitar rock god. No, but he well, is... Well,
2: I mean, he's a rhythm guitar player for a start, primarily. I mean, sure, Thank he, you. He, he he plays some lead <laughs> yeah. stuff. But, but he plays under... a lot of
0: fills, you no, know, which, he, which are, which are kind of like, he, he, almost like mini solos.
2: He's a rhythm player. That is his first function with that band, mm. absolutely without a doubt. And that's the first function of most R&B guitar players. Yes, yeah. I mean, you know, for me, I'm more of a Cornell Dupree person myself. I, mean, I adore Cornell Dupree. But... He's, again, he's a rhythm player, you know, and I like the fact that people rate him so highly, primarily because of him doing that job as well as anyone else, if not better than anyone else, certainly at that time. I wouldn't call him... The second best guitarist in the world. But then they'll put Cornel Dupree in there, probably.
1: <laughs>
2: or or indeed Reggie Young. Or yeah. Bobby Womack. There's a lot of fun R and B guitar players out there.
1: No, George Benson. Oh no. Uh, <laughs> uh, That's a bit too few for me, you know. <laughs> That's merely his commercial work, but he can still play.
0: Oh, sure. He <laughs> think, but... I'm sure he,
1: <laughs> he,
4: he play. I, I saw him a couple of years ago and he most of it was his pop stuff, but on a couple of numbers, he he just sort of let rip his actual chops. It was great. Fun. I tell you what, the,
2: the one thing about Green Onions is, in fact, this we're about two days after the anniversary of Duck Dunn's death, and I've in my Facebook feed, the the you know your memories on Facebook thing, there was me exploding in fury because every time they went on the radio talked about it, they played Green Onions. Duck Dunn didn't play on Green Onions. Oh, that's very just, <laughs> annoying, isn't it? No. It just sends it was, me into a towering Louis Steinberg, raid. Louis Absolutely. Steinberg, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, there,
0: there's and- a funny quote actually in the Bill Waszak well, piece where Steve says when he was touring, when Booker D and the MGs were essentially touring with Neil Young, the great David Briggs, who was Neil's producer, would would be at the side of the stage trying to get Steve to sort of spar with Neil, you know, as if he was kind of Stephen Stills, and it's he it was like, I, I, no. I don't do that, <laughs> you know. <laughs> He's like, go out there and, like, have a kind of guitar fight with Neil. It was like, I think no. you've mistaken me for someone else. <laughs>
1: <Anyway>. <laughs> exactly.
0: So – If Booker T and the MGs were were a rare example of a racially mixed group in the American South, equally rare were the equals in England who were formed by the subject of this week's audio interview. Mark, can you tell us a bit more?
2: Yeah, this this is John Tobler interviewing Eddie Grant in 1990 or 91. We still haven't We think it's probably
0: 91.
2: Okay, well, we'll go with 91. And it's a long interview, two hours, two and a quarter hours, going right back to him as a young guy in Tottenham. Seeing Chuck Berry at the Finsbury Park Astoria in 1964, which both he and Tobler were at, which is, I think, quite much nice <laughs> touched. They were at the same show. His passion for Sonny Boy Williamson. I mean, he's a young black kid growing up in London But he was really, really attracted by this whole sort of the British blues scene as much as anything else, interestingly. Starting The Equals with school friends. Jasper, let's hear the the first clip. This is him on The Equals. It is probably true to say that in this country particularly, this was the first
5: integrated Group, wasn't Believe it? me, I, I, it, at that time, it was a serious rarity because the, the Equals was really quite a well-balanced outfit in terms of personalities. Everybody seemed to have a job to do, and everybody did it. Um, it's unbelievable, really, when you look back on it, that uh, there was never any uh, racial slurs or any... Problems like that within the band, we really somehow managed to transcend the racial thing, and it never became an issue ever, ever. In in the deepest, darkest moments of of whatever problems we ever had, it never came down to that. And I, I think that that was a remarkable fact. Yeah.
2: Really interesting stuff he talks about they have this manager, Edward Kastner, who 's a classic sort of Denmark Street elderly Jewish promoter you know who 's actually he they had massive fallings out endlessly you know he had to fight to get his copyrights back from Kastner, all kinds of stuff like that, but he still has a huge amount of respect for him, and there 's some warmth in the way he talk, talks about this guy. It was obviously kind of really kind of quite a difficult man. Uh, We'll play a clip at the end of the podcast, which is about him dying his hair white, which is hilarious. (laughs) It really is. He had this heart attack towards the end of the Equals. He had a heart attack. Now this is kind of a really young guy, you know, in his his, uh, early early 20s to have a heart attack. So he basically sort of took a year out. The Equals carried on, but significantly less successful without him there because he was was the prime songwriter. He wasn't the lead singer in Equals, but he was the main songwriter in the band. He started his own studio, again, First, the first black to own a recording studio in England, possibly in Europe, called Coach House Studios, which is up in Stoke... Uh, Tottenham? Tot- Tottenham? No, 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 it? no. Um, Stamford Stanford Hill. Stamford Hill, that's the place. Okay. Starts releasing solo records, Message Man being the first one which had any sort of significance. He hits with Walking on Sunshine, Living on the Frontline, He talks about the clash covering police on my back. He actually liked their cover, much to Tubba's amazement. (laughs) He talked about Walking on Sunshine, Katrina and Waves stealing the title. Not the song, but just stealing the title (laughs) to his fury. Moving to Barbados... Starting a studio, in Bar- Blue Wave studio in Barbados, which became a very successful studio. A lot of people, Sting et al, u- had used
0: it. One of the reasons for picking this because because I, I noticed that, Carol, you had gone to Barbados to write this great musician profile of Eddie. It's a terrific piece. I think Electric Avenue is just... A, the song has right. just been suing... I think he's still suing Trump for using Electric Avenue <laughs> in one of, at one of his ra- rallies, and he's really going for it. He's not going to let it yeah, good to his credit. Good. Um, That's I mean, good, just, for yeah, good for him. Yeah, good for him. Before we hear this, the, the second clip, which is great, I mean, I just, Carol, your, your memories of going to Barbados to interview
1: Eddie. Well, remember, this was a time when, the only time, I believe, when Eddie was interested in trying to get an American audience mm-hmm. because he had never really broken in the yeah. states and he finally had an album and people at his record company who wanted to try and and make it happen so the press people had gone out to to all the usual suspects to get as many of us as possible to you know do a story And I think they offered everybody, you know, a a round trip flight to Barbados to kind of see his studios and, you know, to to get a better sense of who the man was.
2: Not a gig you'd turn down. Not a gig you'd turn down. (laughs) No, no, no.
1: Not a gig anybody would turn down. But, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, Living on the Front Line was a very big record also in the States at that Mm -hmm. particular point in time. In fact, much, much bigger than Electric Avenue ever, ever got. Electric Avenue had the advantage of a video that MTV was playing, Mm -hmm. you know, but it still didn't have the same like oomph that Living on the Front Line had. In fact, you could go to almost any nightclub in New York, most famously the Ritz, for example, and that would be played at least once, sometimes twice Mm -hmm. over the sound system in the night. And the Paradise Garage played Time Warp, which was a huge, huge, huge hit at the garage. Right. And I'm not sure whether, you know, Eddie was ever aware of that level of club penetration that he had. I mean, I think had he been aware and had he not still been thinking the way most live musicians think, which is that, you know, I have to succeed on this particular level and at these particular venues in order to really break... I think that had he turned his attention at that particular time to the club scene and really, really you know, started making the kinds of records and the kind of guest appearances mm-hmm. that would have strengthened people's awareness of him as a club artist, I think he might have achieved you know, a level of American stardom and fandom that was much bigger than what he achieved yeah. the
2: other way. I, I think one of the problems he had was he was in Barbados. He's a long way away from stuff. He, he probably had no way of finding stuff out. I mean, the, the next clip is, is interesting in this respect because he talks about he is the band on his stuff. There's no other musicians involved. And, right. you know, something that we're used to, and he says it himself in this with Prince, and before that with Stevie Wonder. Well, he was doing the same thing. Jasper, let's have a listen to this.
5: People hear the music. Like, for example, someone would hear living on the front line, and they hear three hi hats going, playing some kind of thing, and a, and a snare drum that comes in once in a while, and uh, a bass guitar comes in once in a while, and there's this voice going along through this void. And should I have a, a piano playing doing or should I have a guitar uh, but they don't realize that before it gets to them I've tried all of those things <laughs> I've, 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 because in the way in which I record I, ha- I am the group which a lot of people don't really understand they, they, they ascribe um, that form of recording to Stevie Wonder and Prince but somehow they overlook the fact that I've been doing it for years you know Whoa!
0: I don't think I knew at that time that he played every no, instrument on those records. It wouldn't have occurred to me, you know. He's
2: a really, really bright guy, you know. Yes. I mean,
0: he's a super, right. super
2: bright guy. And courageous, brave, very brave cr-
0: guy. I mean, just he, really, he, really went
2: for it. He's fought for his own independence in a way which very few artists, black or white, ever achieve. And for black artists to achieve that degree of independence, certainly when he first started getting there in the 80s, it's pretty much unheard of. It's, 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 he's a remarkable he bought, he, man. He
0: built his own pressing plant.
2: Well, no, he bought, yeah, he bought.
0: Or <laughs> bought his own pressing but plant. It's, but
2: It's, well, but it's incredible. It, but well, he bought it off Edward Kastner. His never- oh, did he? Did he? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, found, and found actually in the end it didn't work because no, you are, you had to have simply more business going through the pressing plant for it to right. It to still, survive. A, still a
0: bold move, but it was very time.
2: very bold mm. move.
4: It's a really interesting interview. I listened to some of it, yeah. and it, he's he's very eloquent and very you know engaged on sociological matters of why certain aspects of music go one way or another way, and he's just very yeah. astute and observant. About all of
0: that kind of thing. Very it's great to listen to. He's just a really interesting man. It's good stuff. It's good Our stuff. Our dear friend Keith Altham briefly managed him, and I remember having Did coffee he? with. Yeah, I remember having coffee with Keith two or three years ago, or maybe slightly longer, because the years do go by very fast now. <laughs> uh, and, and he said, he said, I was just sitting in my living room, and there was a knock at the door last week. And there was Eddie Grant (laughs) (laughs) standing outside this little terraced house in East Sheen. Bless him. So he said, come in, Eddie. Have a cup of tea. (laughs) Very sweet. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. What do we think of those records now? I mean, they're, they're, they're sort of, you can't really compare them to, I mean, your piece, that you wrote for musician, I like, it's called A Reggae Popster Makes His Own Breaks. And he's a kind of a weirdly unclassifiable, isn't he?
2: Absolutely. When I, yes. When I posted this, the, the, the audio, I was thinking, what do I call it? And do you call it soul funk and R and B or reggae or what? You know. <laughs> yeah. And he's and he's he's involved in calypso as any, as much as anything else. Right. He's unclassifiable. Right. It's extraordinary. It's fascinating. He
4: Even invented a, a genre, didn't he? Sort of came up with a genre of global music to kind of bring together under one banner. Right. Under the genre ring bang. <laughs> To envelop all the rhythms that have originated from Africa, <laughs> so, so have that to they become add that one. genre
0: to rock's back pages. It may just have. Well, Eddie he, he was in
4: trying. It, to, he so. was trying to, I think, bring together all kinds of different right. African rhythm traditions in one under one umbrella. Yeah, obviously it Interesting work, it didn't idea. Didn't work there, did it? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I hadn't heard of it until I was reading his Wikipedia page. Uh, at what so. age
0: did he move to the UK? Do, do we know? I mean, was he, he was a kid? A, yeah, he was a kid. He was a kid. Wasn't yeah. He? yeah. Okay. Well, there we go. So we'll hear a bit more Eddie at the end. It's a very, very funny story about the dying of the hair. So listen (laughs) to that. I think it's time to hear about some of the pieces that have entered the Rock's back Pages library, Mark. And Carol, please just jump in if the mood takes you. Okay.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. uh, Well, last week, uh, starting with last week, Graham Nash to Maureen O'Grady in Rave magazine 1967. uh, He says, the Hollies are a pure pop group and don't want to be anything else. I want to be the Graham Nash and to be known because of myself. Now, that's really interesting because this is 67. He joins Crosby Stills and Nash in 69. Well, the fag end of 68, sort of 69. But he is saying things like this. He's not happy being this pop band. So it's just interesting. There he is in 67, in already kind of, you know, struggling with being... being Quite in, restless, wasn't yes, he, already uh, at this point? Absolutely. Dusty Springfield to Alan Smith, NME, 68. Most people in this business are in it to be liked. I hate to be disliked, except when I maybe can't stand the person myself. So I always like her interviews, always very interesting. Michael Lydon's obituary of Jimi Hendrix, New York Times, September 70. And Michael Lydon says, it will be years before we know enough to know how fine an artist he was, which I think is a pretty fair point. I think that's a, a very good point. Philip Elwood sees Aretha Franklin at the Fillmore West, a famous Aretha at Fillmore West recordings. San Francisco Exam 1971. He says, her crowd, black and white together, are for at least those few minutes of their lives sole brothers and sisters in the Franklin con- congregation. Which
0: You've is... written quite a lot. You've written about it. I know we've got an Aretha piece by you, Carol. I think it yes. was, after. I don't know if it was like a formal obituary or a piece just written after she died, but I remember thinking it was fantastic.
1: Yeah, that might have been that might have been the obit that I did for the voice.
0: I think that's what it was. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, it was it was both anticipated and devastating when she died for everybody. Yeah. yeah. You know, because you know we had known for a long time that she was battling cancer, and you know somewhere deep down inside we all thought, well, she's tight with God. She's going to beat it. <laughs> so she, she, she's going to beat it. God won't let her die. <laughs>
2: Oh, man. Did you see the Amazing Grace movie that came out last year? Yes, I did. Year? Oh, yeah. you must have, It was yeah. absolutely fantastic. I mean, slightly unnerving stuff. I mean, you know, her dad's basically wanting to be the star of the show in the front row with Clara Ward was, you know, slightly stuck in my craw anyway. But uh, it, it, I, <laughs> <laughs> great movie.
1: Did you read the uh, David Ritz uh, biography? Oh, yeah. How no. Did
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I found it. I mean, you know, despite the fact that it's not always flattering, I found it to be very well researched and pretty fair. Assessment of what was going on, you know, sociologically as well as musicologically at the time.
2: And, and, you know, her upbringing not being the most simple sort of process. I I think her father's a difficult man in many respects and kind of ruled her life in in a variety. And then, of course, she had really ghastly boyfriends and husbands like, you know, was it Ted White? Was it Ted (laughs) White? (laughs) You know,
1: (laughs) some women like a bad boy. What can I say?
0: I never knew that, Carol. I'm so <laughs> glad we <laughs> Until, now, Until now. I never knew that. Uh, Stephen Daly <laughs> interviewing Joni
2: Mitchell in Rolling Stone in '98, and she says, Music is like sex. It's difficult to give instruction to
0: a man. <laughs> <laughs> that, that followed very neatly from the previous comments. <laughs>
2: Fantastic. We're, we're, we're Almost we're like zo- we planned it. We're in the zone here, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Richard Goldstein, this, this week going in new, Richard Goldstein reviewing Magical Mystery Tour, the album, the American album release, of the Beatles Magical Mystery Tour, New York Times, 1967. He says, if these under-20s people are deserting the Beatles, it's because their former idols have departed from rock, its sound, its structure, its specific brand of sensuality. He's basically complaining that they got too posh. Which, you know, it's <laughs> odd, too hard Too hard for their own <laughs> boots. <laughs> This next one, I'm afraid, Carol, will mean absolutely nothing to you whatsoever. Don't presume.
0: don't assume. Well,
2: unless you're you're a fan of London. I know where he's going. uh, I know what's coming. Unless you're a fan of London soccer teams, this will not mean anything to you. (laughs) Keith Olsen reporting on Chelsea Football Club, which, as listeners of this podcast will know, is a, a subject close to Barney and Jasper and my own heart. Recording their song, Blue is the Colour. The, the classic football yes. <laughs> uh, This is um, the producer, Larry Page, saying, Marvin Hinton and John Hollins were terrified. As soon as I heard John, I knew we were all right for a soprano.
0: <laughs> uh, that is hilarious. I mean, it's worth pointing out that by the time this podcast goes live, we will either be champions of Europe... <laughs> Or we will be in a deep (laughs) funk.
2: Yes. Uh, The the wrong sort of funk.
0: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. bad funk, not good funk.
1: Nobody likes it when England loses because you guys do not behave well when you lose.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You noticed. (laughs) Brilliant. Brilliant.
1: Fantastic. Uh, well, we Max,
0: won't go we won't go on a three man riot if Chelsea lose <laughs> on Saturday night. You won't you won't read reports of the Rocks Pages team being sort of arrested in the street. I can promise you that.
1: Good to uh, know. <laughs> Nineteen
2: seventy-eight, Richard Williams interviewing the great Gil Evans. Gillis broke. It's extraordinary. Half this interview is about has got no money. Uh, he didn't see a penny in royalties for most of those Miles Davis albums he worked on, for example. He'd get oh a flat fi- he'd get a flat fee as an arranger. He says I've realised that you can't earn a medium income in America. You earn either $3,000 a year or 300000
0: And that hasn't really changed either, has it? And that really? hasn't really changed yeah. either. <laughs> in fact, that's even worse now, <laughs> if you multiply those numbers by well, like a uh, yeah.
2: quite. You quite. Know, and he's t- talking about Lester Young. He says, Prez is one of the great innovators, but Bird's hot breath was blowing down his neck. I love that. Bird's hot breath was blowing down his neck. we got a Sir Paul Gambaccini in 1980 for Record Mirror interviewing Paul McCartney shortly after he had returned from his brief stay in a Japanese jail after being busted for weed. And he said, I walked straight into Japan after a 14-hour flight thinking, it's not that bad but it was an extremely serious offence. It's actually quite an interesting interview. It's certainly the one I've read where he talks most about the, the drug bust. He was actually banged up, wasn't he? It was, seven days. Seven days, seven days, yeah. yeah. He said, yeah but it, yeah. He, he was looking at a ten-year sentence. Commuted to seven days. No, it, would have, yeah. it would have saved us a lot of really
0: terrible music. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. No wings. Yeah, yeah. No, it wouldn't, no, we'd still have had wings. Of course, we'd still have had wings. Yeah. But
1: maybe not silly love songs. Well, Jesus Christ. <laughs> or,
0: or Ebony and Ivory. Or God, yeah.
1: There's
2: a long list of criminal offences to be sort of taken into consideration. Iggy Pop is interviewed by Glenn O'Brien in Interview Magazine in 1990. Iggy Pop's always a good interviewee. He says, I know all the most foolish things I ever did, ones that really upset a lot of people and caused me all this grief at the time. Those are all my favourite things.
0: (laughs) (laughs) These are a few of my...
2: (laughs) Generally, I don't don't look before I leap in life and it gets me into a lot of shit. It's a good interview. And also that Glenn
0: O'Brien's exactly the right person to interview Iggy Pop. Did you ever know Glenn O'Brien, Carol? Did you ever
1: meet him? I never met Glenn. I never met Glenn. Right. It's funny because in the uh, DVD of downtown 81, there is a lot of bonus footage uh, where Glenn is talking about uh, the making of that film and, you know, his whole like downtown cabal where, you know, Fat by Freddy was involved and yeah. that whole uptown meets downtown scene came together and right. stuff. And, you know, that extra footage makes me wish that I had met him because, you know, he's, he's, you know, he's far more interesting than, you know, just his columns and interview might lead you to believe.
0: (laughs) Fantastic interviewer and fantastic writer. Great loss. And, and, and also, I mean, he came on board early. It gave us like, as, as with you, it gave us some kudos. It really did, you know, gave us some
2: credibility amongst the American journalistic.
0: Nice. Get your pipe out here. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs)
2: That is my lot. Over to you two guys.
0: Beautiful. I won't quote from anything, but I want to mention a wonderful Candia Crazy Horse piece. Do you know Candia at all? Have you ever met her? Yeah. Yes. Well we had her on a podcast a few months ago and she, she was wonderful, but, and she said, Oh, there's a bunch of pieces I wrote for the San Francisco Bay guardian. And you should check those out and add them. And so this week we're adding one that she's written apropos Neil Young. And it's just, it's, it's, it's fabulous. Candia just singing this sort of peon to, to Neil having just listened to the, the first archives box. And it's, Oh, I mean, I I just love the way she writes about yeah. about people like Neil. Mm. And then in the sort of stacks vein, there's a there's a nice interview with with William Bell from 2017 actually, which is he's touring as there's a kind of I can't remember what the tour is called, but it's a sort of celebration of Memphis. It's a, and we were talking about Memphis earlier, so it kind of ties in with that. And then finally, just. A piece actually from earlier this year from Vice magazine that Paul Welling sent me, which is a guide to his 10 favorite clubs in the kind of underground black music dance scene of, I can't remember what the kind of bookending years are, but it's just, it's a great, it's a great kind of guide to what life was like at Fabric. And also clubs in Ibiza and various like mm. hotspots that he regularly attended, and the anthems that he treasures most from that period. It's, just, it's a lovely sort of guide, really, to the, to to that to those scenes. So mm. just over to you.
4: Nice. The first thing I want to mention is actually from last week, which I added a primer, one of the wires primer series. Edwin Pouncy writes about occult rock you know, 5,000 <laughs> words about occult rock. And it's, you know, the neo-paganism and witchcraft of Alistair Crowley and basically Edwin Pouncey reads the runes, quote-unquote, from Black Widow to Alec Todolo. It's just, I mean, totally not the kind of thing that I would normally listen to, but as a as a thing to read about, it's just fascinating because it's got all that stuff about, you know,
2: Satanism and it's, it's quite, various... It's, it's quite good. Lon Goddard who's one of our writers. who used to write for a record mirror sent me a couple of pieces that we hadn't posted that he'd written about Black Widow back in 1970. Black Widow. Uh, 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 and uh, they were just ludicrous, dead like you know, have a sacrifice a naked woman on stage <laughs> and all this sort of stuff. You know, the thing is Jesus. they were just a bad proto metal band, you know. I mean <laughs> Jasper,
0: we were before we started recording, we did notice this sort of upside down crucifix outside your window. <laughs> it's you claim is just a piece of trellis work. But I think we know better, we, don't we? That we occult do. rock piece has turned oh my God. <laughs> yeah.
2: Help me in my search for knowledge I must learn the secret art Who dares to help me raise the one Whose very name seals my heart
4: From this week I want to mention two pieces The first of which, it's funny, Mark, that you should mention Yes, Yes, Y'all, because this is a piece by Lisa Verico in The Times in 2003, and she's trying to teach Times readers how to get hip to rap. <laughs> it's, yeah, it is what it is. But it does mention that book, edited by Jim Frick and, and Charlie Ahern, mm. traces rap to its early 1970s Bronx roots. And it also mentions David Toop's rap attack. So it's interesting right. on those fronts. Lastly, an interview, short interview with Rick Rubin in Spin, oh, nice. of course, produced Beastie Boys, Run DMC, mm-hmm. etc. But also Johnny Cash and the Dixie Chicks and Neil Donovan. Diamond and Shakira Donovan. and Donovan. <laughs> and. How did he <laughs> <know, laughs> get in there? The interviewer asks Neil Diamond, Shakira, and Dixie Chicks are some of your recent projects. What attracted you to them? They're all different, and that's what makes it exciting to go to the studio every day. If all I made were heavy metal records, it wouldn't be a fun job, and I probably wouldn't stay good at it. But going from a Chili Pepper session to Neil Diamond and then to a Dixie Chicks session forces me to think about music in new ways each day.
1: <laughs> he <laughs> asks
4: him if this he is- believes that, uh, this Alan Light asking him. Would the Rick Rubin of 20 years ago believe these would be the kind of artists he'd be working with? I probably would have been excited. I always loved Neil
2: Diamond. <laughs> <laughs> Him and Robbie Robertson. Fine. Rick Rubin, I mean, having said that, he's still pretty tasty at the funny metal stuff. I mean, he did that last Easy Top album, which was a really, really decent record. Fantastic. And weirdly, that Black Sabbath album from about three years ago, it's really not bad. I mean, mm. you know, <laughs> it's, you know, it's it's Black Sabbath, you know, but... It's pretty not bad. Carol, have
1: you
0: ever interviewed
1: Rick? <laughs> I actually did. I actually did. And and in a kind of an unexpected way as well. I basically was writing for Egg Magazine, which was that short-lived lifestyle mm-hmm. magazine that Malcolm Forbes was behind for one reason. And I pitched them a story about record pools. And right. at this particular point in time, you know, nobody who wasn't in a record pool even knew what a record pool mm-hmm. was. But they were ad hoc DJ organizations yeah. that distributed free copies of new records to DJs that were playing in different spaces, different clubs and whatnot around the city.
2: David Mancuso was very involved in setting yes. up some of the early ones. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yes. yeah. In fact, he had the first right. uh, record pool. New York record pool was his. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I was writing about record pools at that particular point in time. And at that time, there were three. That were the most important. There was For the Record that was being run by Judy, who was basically kind of the the heir to Mancuso because Mancuso had stopped being active actively running the pool. Right. And Judy was running it instead. And then you had a Bronx record pool called Sure, S-U-R-E record pool. And that was a predominantly black record pool organized and run by black DJs. And that was the record pool that Rick Rubin belonged to when he first started, you know, playing records Mm -hmm. in the city. And I... Interviewed him about his experience at Shure, because I wanted to talk about Shure as being, you know, a pioneering record pool, the same way that For the Record and RPBC, which is the record pool I was affiliated with Mm -hmm. in the city, because all of them kind of specialized in slightly different types of music. And, you know, we all, you know, were affiliated with slightly different ranges of clubs because every DJ who belonged to a record pool, usually, you know, they were like little gangs, little, Mm -hmm. little, (laughs) little music fan gangs, right? So, in any case, yeah, I talked to Rick about his experience at SURE, and he was more enthusiastic about talking about that. Than about anything else that I, had, I have ever seen. Him oh, really? about. Oh, that's yeah. nice. How yeah, nice. it was. It was really, really cool. It was very, very cool. I think we've come
0: to the end of the episode, haven't we? Indeed. I yeah, think we have. I think so. I, thought I better just check. It been oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's been such fun speaking with yeah. you, Carol. Thank you so Lovely. much for joining us.
1: I'm uh, glad it worked out. Thank you. <laughs>
0: oh, it's great. It's really great. Yeah. So we will be back in a couple of weeks with a fellow New Yorker of yours, uh, David Camp, Vanity Fair writer and co-author oh, wow. of the Rock Snobs Dictionary. So we'll be talking <laughs> with... Jasper will be away. I think he'll be up in Yorkshire. And so Martin Colley will be joining us and we'll be talking about rock snobbery and, well, other things in two weeks.
1: Is rock snobbery still a thing?
0: We'll find really? out. We'll
3: find out from there. <laughs> Tune in. Tune in to find out. Actually,
0: I think if you listen to the last hour, you'll
2: realise it's a pretty strong thing here. At Alive and ages. well. <laughs>
3: <laughs>
1: We're
0: nothing I if see. not rock but, snobs.
1: Yes, but this is sort of behind closed doors, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little different. Oh, before I let you guys go, is everybody vaccinated? Uh, yes, I am.
0: I'm Yay! not. I'm not eligible yet. It it might amaze you to, to oh. so he might you might be amazed that like Jasper's younger than us. He and should, therefore no. Has not has no. not had, yeah. <laughs> he has <laughs> not had his first jab yet well yeah you, because you, he, no. he's
2: 12 and it, you know they, 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 he's just gonna be a bit older for... <laughs> uh, Not susceptible, how about you Carl? i'm looking forward to
0: getting it when i can how about you I carol
1: i was curious because i have a godson who's actually living in in london right now and he's waiting for his as well but yes i got mine because i'm a teacher and oh, the right, prioritized teacher is very early yeah yeah and so i i was fully vaccinated by march yeah. Right,
0: great. That's fantastic. Not much last year. No, no obviously this. <laughs> no, year. Yeah. I was the first no. person on Earth. No, anyway, I'm sorry. Right, <laughs> right, right. That, right, was, right,
1: that right. was a really
0: stupid thing to say. And Jasper, please the cut that out. The aliens
1: gave it to me. <laughs> <laughs>
4: No, nope, it's staying yeah. in now, Barney. Well,
0: <laughs> can we do an hour now on alien conspiracy vaccine theories, <laughs> please? <laughs> right. So, okay. Back in two weeks. Thanks so much, Carol. We'll say goodbye now. Mark's going to just talk us out with the the last of the clips.
2: Well, there the were two features about Eddie Grant that struck me as a ten year old, whatever it was. One that he had <laughs> he had a, he played a scratch cast with holes cut into it, and the second thing was he had white hair. This clips about why he got his hair, he dyed his hair white. Brilliant. Well, Great. bye everybody.
0: Bye. Thanks for listening.
2: Bye. Thanks
5: again, bye. Carol. Wow. One day I was in Denmark Street, and for some reason I had to go upstairs at Brian Som- Somerville, the publicist's yes. office, with some of the guys. We we got into discussion about. Black artists and white Why they pick on me to discuss black artists and white artists, only God knows. But it, on this particular day, it happened. And Brian said, yeah, well, you know why there aren't any real big black artists? It's because they don't have no bottle. I mean, they, they're, they're ordinary. They're all ordinary. And I said, what do you mean ordinary? He said, well, they all wear suits and they all wear... Ties and they're straight and they do these little funny dances and sort of thing. He says, I mean, they wouldn't actually, you know, I mean, take for example you, Eddie, you wouldn't go out and make your hair white, for example. I mean, I don't know, they didn't like it. I mean, I says, Brian, don't be ridiculous. Of course, I, I mean, I would do anything. I mean, I'd walk nude and chant Cross the road, it didn't make no difference to me. He says, yeah, you can say that, but it takes a lot of bottle to do it. And so I said, right, what do you want to bet? He says, uh, oh, I bet you that you would never make your hair white. <laughs> I mean, he didn't know how to do it, and I didn't know how to do it. I said, right, there you are. It's on. Being
3: the will white white, we'll be
0: when the war is over.
4: That was Eddie Grant in conversation with John Tobler in 1991, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Carol Cooper. Please visit carolcooper.org for more of her writing and to buy her book. The hosts are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper, Muris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com.